Good morning to each of you. Just ignore what is on the screen behind me for a moment. It's going to be hard to do now that I've drawn your attention to it. And turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 12. Again, Romans chapter 12. We are looking at a small portion of this chapter today, right now. I, however, want to read the chapter in its entirety to ensure that we are interpreting Paul correctly in the larger context, never losing sight of his argument, his thought flow, as he makes his way from the first verse to the 21st verse. And so follow along as I read again Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I will add my amen, hearty amen, to the reading of God's word. Now... You can look at the screen behind me. We're going to start at the bottom. Foundation, right? Think in terms of foundation. And so at the bottom of this paradigm that you have there on the screen behind me, uh, you will notice that expression, the mercies of God. Paul uses it, very first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What does he mean by the mercies of God? It is a summary statement of everything he has said in the first 11 chapters. We need to be clear on that. He began those first 11 chapters, really from the middle of chapter 1, right through to the middle of chapter 3. He began that big major section on doctrine by painting a very dark portrait of the human condition, didn't he? He began by showing us, forcing us to look at ourselves and look in particular at our sinfulness, our state, 
our condition as sinners before a holy God. And he made it clear there is none righteous, no, not one. Right? There is no one who does good. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, useless. He sums it up. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a summary statement description of the human condition. We're kind of like, I, I, I was thinking of this the other day. Uh, I drive by it a lot, and you've all driven by it at some point. It's 56 behind me, right? Let me get my bearings. 56, right behind me here. You drive up 56. I think it's 318. If you want to go to the Phillips house, or the Phillips house, you turn, a few other houses of people here at the church, you would turn on 318. Have you ever noticed right there at that juncture. There's a little house on the left. You ever notice that place just falling down? The, the roof is caving in. The windows and doors gone for decades. And it just looks, I mean, that other night, that good gust of wind we had, it's a wonder the thing is still standing, right? It, it's, it's all it's waiting for is the wrecking ball or someone to pour a little gasoline and light the match. And that would be the end of it. I, whenever I drive by it, I can't help but look, and I, I always get a little wave of nostalgia when I look at it. Why? Because I think to myself, someone once lived here. Someone once lived here. There was a time when this was a lively play, place. Uh, there was a time where there were occupants. Uh, there was a time when there was a lot going on and happening here, but all we can say now as we look at that, that house dilapidated, all we can say now, all we can conclude now is this, someone once lived here. That's the human condition. That's man in his fallen state. As we look at men and women in their fallen state, by virtue of Adam and Eve's fall. And so who everyone is, man, woman, boy, girl, being born into this world in their sinful state, we can look at them as a dilapidated house and we can conclude what? God once lived here. Created in the very image of God in the garden. The pinnacle of God's entire creation of the cosmos. The first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. The image of God created with the distinct purpose and privilege of mirroring the very glory of God. As a result of their rebellion, they plunged themselves all of their descendants, all of humanity into a condition of sin whereby that image of God is now corrupted and marred beyond recognition. God once lived here. That is the human predicament. I submit to you that is the starting point of all reality. We can make no sense of the human experience. We can make no sense of human history. We can make no sense of society. We can make no sense of our own lives without that absolutely essential, necessary starting point. Who, what are we as fallen sinners before a holy God? That's how Paul begins those first 11 chapters, isn't it? But then the news gets really good. Good news. The gospel. The mercies of God. We can think of the mercies of the triune God. We can think specifically of the mercies of God the Father, whereby his people, Christians, believers, he foreknew them. It is an eternal union. It is a covenantal union. 
whereby the Father, foreseeing man in his fallen state, set his love upon his people, thereby entering into an eternal union with them. Oh, the mercies of God the Father. We can think of the mercies of God the Son. The triune God covenanting the great covenant of redemption in eternity. And God the Son agreeing to do what? Because he was compelled by love for his Father. Consumed with the glory of his Father. Assumed humanity, body and soul. Walked upon this very earth. And he entered into a historical Union with his people, whereby he lived as their head. Everything he did, he did for his people. And get this, at every age he did it. As a baby in the manger, as a toddler, as a young boy, as a teenager, as a young man, all through his life, everything he did, he did as the head of his people. A historical union whereby throughout his entire life, he fulfilled all righteousness. And he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did what God requires of us, yet what we cannot do in and of ourselves. And then he topped it all off by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, whereby he assumed as our head in this historical union that punishment and condemnation which was ours by right. And then he was buried. He rose again as our head. He ascended into heaven as our head. He sat down at the right hand of God where he now rules at this very moment as our head. Therefore, Paul can celebrate what fact? We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Oh, the mercies of the Son of God. We can celebrate the mercies of God the Spirit. Yes, an eternal union, God the Father, is in view. Yes, a historical union, God the Son, is in view. And yes, a spiritual union, the Holy Spirit, is in view. Whereby there was a moment in my life, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, going in a direction opposite from, contrary to, the living God. The Spirit of God entered into my life. The Spirit of God took hold of me. The Spirit of God caused me to be born again to a living hope. The Spirit of God now united me spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby everything he purchased by his great act of redemption is now applied to me because I am one with him in an indissoluble spiritual union by virtue of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. Oh, the mercies of God the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is, in an essence, the message of the first 11 chapters. When we enter the 12th chapter... Paul shifts gears, and his message is simply this. Are you ready for it? Two words. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. If all of that is true, and if we really get the mercies of God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and what this incomparable God has done on behalf of us, sinners, rebels, those mercies will grip us. Those mercies will transform us. And that transformation will be evident in two things. Work your way up the diagram. Follow the arrow. Firstly, it will be manifested in what? A consecrated life, body. We will present ourselves our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. You see, I'll understand this. I'll be reasonable. I'll get this. I don't belong to me. 
I know it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? I don't belong to me. I'm not mine. Someone has purchased me. God has purchased me. And God looks at my life, every facet, every area, every condition, every characteristic, every circumstance, and you know what he declares? Mine. That's what he declares. We are no longer our own. We've been bought. We belong to someone else. And Paul's point is this, be reasonable, therefore. A consecrated life. Present your lives as a living sacrifice to God. The second reasonable response is this, a renewed mind. Understand you're living in a hostile world. Understand that, yes, the new creation has been inaugurated. It was inaugurated when Christ rose from the dead, ascended on high, assumed headship over all things at the right hand of God from where he now reigns. The new creation already exists. The new creation has been established, but we are awaiting its consummation. And here we are as people who belong to a new creation, trying to get along and live in an old creation. And there's so many pressures, there's so many false messages. There's an entire way and system of thinking that is so prevalent in this old creation. And Paul's point is simply what? Don't be conformed to that way of thinking. You be transformed. Metamorphosis. You be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two pillars. A twofold response to the mercies of God. Now work your way up the paradigm. Follow the arrow. And what do we find? How these twin pillars, foundational, are then made evident in life. And the first way we see them is in what? Sober judgment. Another word for that is simply humility. Verses 3 through 8. The second way we see these two foundational thoughts in action in life is what? Genuine love. Verses 9 through 16, genuine, sincere, unhypocritical, as the word literally means, without a mask. Genuine love, Paul says there in the ninth verse, is what? Genuine love hates what is evil. Genuine love loves, therefore holds fast to that which is good. Why? Because you see, this is an individual who's born again. This is an individual who's now offering his life, consecrated life, living as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. This is an individual who's being transformed by the renewal of his mind. This is an individual who's exercising sober judgment that is in accordance with God's word, and he understands who he is, who she is, in the light of God's mercies. This, therefore, is an individual who loves, and this love is determined and governed by what? The will of God as revealed in the word of God. Therefore, this individual loves God's will and absolutely is consumed with what? Hatred is the word for anything contrary to the will of God. What we saw last Sunday in these verses, 9 through 16, the point I made was this, that such love bears, shows forth, demonstrates ten Marks. We looked at five last Lord's Day. The first mark, brotherly affection, 10th verse. Love one another with brotherly affection. The second mark, preferential treatment, middle of the 10th verse. Outdo one another in showing honor. The third mark, fervent service, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Fourth mark, joyful anticipation. Verse 12, very first statement, rejoice in hope. And the fifth mark, again, this is last Sunday. The fifth mark we considered was this, patient suffering. Middle of the 12th verse, be patient in tribulation. How many marks are there? Ten. How many did we look at last Sunday? Five. That means we have how many to go today? Five. And so we pick it up with number six. Ricky, you can take that slide away now. Everybody is clear on how it fits together. Everyone is clear on the thought flow and where this text fits in, in, the, in light of the entire book and what Paul has been arguing for and how he has been celebrating doctrine and is now making it very practical. 
And so we continue our study, our analysis of genuine love, Mark number six, constant prayer. Right at the end of the 12th verse, it's a commandment, be constant in prayer. You trace the example of the Lord Jesus himself, especially through the book of Luke. Get a concordance, look up all the references to prayer as it relates to the Lord Jesus in Luke's gospel account. Very profitable study. Then you do the same thing in the book of Acts and see how often the local church devotes itself. That word is used on a number of occasions. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then you hear a commandment like this, or you hear a commandment very similar in Colossians chapter 4, I believe it is. Paul states that we are to devote ourselves, commit ourselves, continue steadfast, I think is the exact language he uses, continue steadfast in prayer. I want to make four pastoral remarks, four pastoral remarks in the context in which we find this command, especially how this is to play out in the context of Grace Community Church. Here's the first remark I want to make. This commandment is vital to the gifts. Remember the context of the gifts back in verses 6 through 8. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contributing, that is giving, leading, uh, performing acts of mercy. Please understand just how pivotal prayer is to the performance of these gifts. We can expand. That is to the performance of ministry in general in the context of the local church. Engaging in ministry, exercising these gifts without, apart from prayer, is like sowing seeds without water. It's like unwatered seeds. And so if you want to sow a field, some sort of crop, and uh, you scatter the seeds, but uh, give no time, no attention to actually watering what has been sown, what will be the result? There will be no result. Oh, the importance of bathing these gifts and bathing church ministry in a spirit, a posture, and attitude of prayer, right? At Grace Community Church. As individuals, when we pray. As care groups, when we pray. Oh, may we always have our ministries, our gifts before us. And may we beg God's blessing upon all that we do. That's the first pastoral remark I want to make. The second is this. It's important to stick with Scripture when we pray. Stick with Scripture. A lot of us get into trouble not knowing what to pray for. Here's my pastoral recommendation to us. Read Ephesians 1, read Ephesians 3, and read Colossians 1. You will discover three extensive, very involved pastoral prayers in those chapters. Paul praying for a church, a body of believers. What he prays for is what we should be praying for. It is that simple. Read his prayers, list the requests, and we must turn those, make those our prayers here at Grace Community Church, especially in the context of ministry. Here's the third pastoral remark I want to make. We, at times, struggle to be constant in prayer. I can tell you why that happens. When we struggle to be constant in prayer, there is only one reason in the context of this passage. It is because we either lack sober judgment or we lack genuine love. It is that straightforward, folks. I know when I'm struggling with prayer and have gone through a dry season and have no desire to pray, I can trace it back to one of these two things. Either I lack sober ju judgment and therefore have lost sight of just how desperately I need God's grace every moment of every day, or uh, something has waned in my love for you whereby for some strange reason I'm no longer compelled, driven to my knees to pray on your behalf. I guarantee it. Whenever we struggle to be constant in prayer, it will be one of those two, if not both at the same time, those reasons. We either lack sober judgment or we lack genuine love. Fourth pastoral remark I want to make is this. Constant prayer 
will ignite genuine love. There is a relationship, a connection between the two. It is extremely difficult to envy someone, resent someone, or dislike someone for whom I am praying regularly. Actually, I think I've stated that wrong. It is difficult. That's too, no, no, no. I, I actually affirm it is impossible. It is impossible to envy someone, resent someone, or dislike someone for whom I am praying regularly, earnestly, faithfully. And so here's my pastoral encouragement to you and to me. Let's just suppose. It's completely hypothetical. All right, let's just suppose. Someone here you don't like. All right? Complete. I mean, this is just off the wall, isn't it? There's someone you don't really get along with. Here is my pastoral counsel. Here is my pastoral advice. For the next week or two, pray for that person. And you know what? You might not see any change in that person, but you'll see an unbelievable change in you. An unbelievable change in me. Oh, the direct correlation between genuine love and constant prayer. The seventh mark, that was six, constant prayer. The seventh mark of genuine love is this, generosity. We enter verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I want to sum up Paul's intent with that commandment in one statement. Here it is. We are... And thinking again in the context of Grace Community Church, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, we are to make it our business to share ourselves with others. I think that's what he's saying. Contribute to the needs. Identify their needs. Material needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. You contribute. That is to meeting, addressing, fulfilling, Meeting those needs. And one way in particular of doing that, showing hospitality. Showing hospitality in that day was something of far greater significance than it is in our day. In our day, maybe it's a two-hour luncheon on a Sunday afternoon. In that day, it meant someone staying in the home, perhaps for a prolonged period of time. Paul's point is what? Be prepared to share yourself with others. Be prepared to share your resources. Be prepared to share your finances. Be prepared to share your time. Be prepared to share your emotions. Be prepared to share your energy. Be prepared to share your insights. This is genuine love in action. Contribute to the needs of the saints and teach, seek to show hospitality. I want to make, again, four pastoral observations. I'm not going to do this with each mark, but I'm going to do this with this one. Again, four pastoral observations. And then again, I want to give a little challenge at the end of it. Pastoral remark, observation number one is this. It's going to strike you as strange at the beginning. I'll explain it. We, Grace Community Church, I'm thinking in particular of generosity and this kind of ministry. We, Grace Community Church, we build our section of a wall. Okay, did you get that? Now, what could I possibly be talking about? We build our section of the wall. I'm talking about the book of Nehemiah and in particular chapter 3. I'm making reference to the fact that after that period of Babylonian captivity, the remnant returned to the promised land and rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt what? The wall. How did that happen? How did it transpire? It's fascinating. Each family was designated a certain section of the wall. It's all they were responsible for. They're responsible for their section. Another family was responsible for their section. Maybe it was a gate even. And then this family household was responsible for this section. Uh, you know, the family responsible for this section wasn't responsible for the section on the other side of the wall. That family way over there wasn't responsible for what was going on on this side. Each one was given their ministry, their responsibility, their duty to construct their section of the wall. And when they all put their shoulder into it, gave their time to it, their energy to it, their gifts, whatever it is they brought to the equation, what was the net result? The wall went up. Very important for us to appropriate that kind of thinking. We, Grace Community Church, we build our section of the wall. We are one local church among hundreds of thousands. The body of Christ, universal. We have a section of the wall that we need to identify and that we need to 
do a faithful job at building. Are you with me? Now let me add to it with a second pastoral observation. Building on that, we, Grace Community Church, strive to be generous. Fulfill that command. And praise God for the many ways in which you do that. We seek to do so, firstly, to believers. That's the emphasis in the 13th verse. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So in the first instance, Paul expected this church at Rome to do this how? In the context of the church at Rome. That was their first priority. Their fellow believers in their local church. When we flip over a couple chapters, Paul's going to remind this church that he's collecting an offering wherever he goes, especially among the Gentiles. And this offering that he's collecting in places like Macedonia and Greece and other places, where is he going to end up taking it? Somewhere most of those people have never been. To help people, most of those people don't know and never will, ever, will, will never meet. He's going to take that offering back to Jerusalem, which is undergoing a famine, in order to minister to the physical material needs of Christians there. So you're following the paradigm here. The first application is the local church where you find yourself. Exercise this. Obey this commandment. The second application as you move on is believers, yes, beyond the confines of our immediate sphere of influence. Then as you read the New Testament, you discover, yes, even to unbelievers, there is a responsibility, there is a calling to be generous to minister to people's needs. But important we have that paradigm in view. Important to realize that, yes, we strive to be generous, but there is an order. There is a methodology. There is an approach. I want to build on with a third remark. Here it is. We, Grace Community Church, strive to exercise prudent generosity. Prudent generosity. Prudent, where do I get that from? I go right back to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. At times, giving can actually be harmful. At times, giving can do more harm than good. It does require prudence at times, doesn't it? Generosity requires wisdom. Generosity requires being in the know. What are all the factors? What contributes to this? And what is the best way to resolve this? The need for prudent generosity. Now, let me add to this with a fourth. You might be asking yourself, why, why are you doing this? Why are you belaboring this? Because I want to give pastoral advice. I want to give us a frame of reference to, so you understand how we do try to f operate here at Grace Community Church. I want you to be able to even apply this in your own context. And I want to free some of us. I want to free some of us. This comes out with the fourth point. I want to free some of us from the mindset that we can easily fall into. It's simply this. We think we need to respond to every need. Here's my fourth point. We, Grace Community Church, recognize that a need isn't necessarily a call. A need isn't necessarily a call. Crises upon crises upon crises. There always have been. There are in our day. And there always will be. As a local church, we identify and we, be, and we labor over this. And we pray over this. What is the section of the wall God has given us? Let's do a good job at building this section of the wall. You think at home in this local church. You think of the work that goes on here in terms of benevolence ministering to the needs that go unknown within this local expression of the body of Christ. There you have it, generosity in action in the context of Grace Community Church. You extend that to believers around the world and how on occasion we do contribute to necessities to aid our brothers and sisters in other places. You move even beyond that then into the realm of unbelievers. And you think of this team of 16 that's about to go down to Guatemala and minister to orphans. You think of everything we do at Grace Community Church and how it fits into this paradigm and exactly what our calling is to be faithful with what God has given us in terms of our immediate responsibility, weighing all things according to our ability, yes, according to opportunity, but we recognize that a need isn't necessarily a call. 
a danger I find myself succumbing to on occasion. And I suppose that's why I'm going down this road, because I assume many of us do, is we can get so caught up in the apparent urgent, so caught up in the next crisis, that we lose sight of what God has already laid at our feet. Right? Here's the challenge. And this challenge came out of a little bit of an experience I had this past week. I'll share it with you. Here's the challenge I want to share with you. On Thursday, I was flying back from Atlanta. Flight at 7.30 at night. Found out there was an earlier flight at 5.30. Arrived there about quarter to five. Tried to get on the earlier flight. No, sir, it's full. So I had to do one of my favorite things, which was sit in an airport for two and a half hours. <laughs> TV screens all over the place hanging from the ceiling. And it was uh, Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. And then it was somebody else, it was somebody else, it was somebody else. I had my trail mix and felt like flicking sunflower seeds at the screen, but I didn't listen to what they were saying. Oh, the negativity, the speculation, the, at times, absolute lack of logic, unreasonable, shrill, and I began to think to myself, you know, this is what people feed on. Whether it be CNN or Fox, take your poison, pick your poison as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is what people feed on. Just this constant bombardment. And, uh, and then, then, you, then you go on Facebook. And everybody's posting an article that you must read to be informed. And here's something, here, uh, here's, here's, here's something I, I want to give to you pastorally. And please understand it. If you've been here for any period of time, you'll be able to put it in a larger context. It's a little risky, but here it is. We don't have to have an opinion on everything. We really don't. We don't have to have an opinion on every issue. We don't have to have an opinion on every crisis. You know what our problem is? We think we do. And we cultivate that opinion on a 30-second soundbite which represents someone else's skewed opinion who really is clueless as to what's going on. And then we actually think we are in the know, in the know. And we get consumed with this stuff, just consumed. And uh, so here's my challenge. Here's my challenge for you. Ready? It's very simple. And I say this with genuine love. Here's the challenge. This coming week, disengage. Just disengage from it all. Just disengage. Turn it off. Whether it be the news, whether it be the talk show, whether it be all that Facebook stuff coming at you, just think, this week, I really don't need to know anything. I really don't. Because in the final, I don't, it don't really make any difference to it anyway. I don't need to know. Just disengage. And rather, here's what I want us to do. I want you to identify one person in this church that you don't know. And I want you to practice hospitality. I want you just to think, you know, I don't really know that person. What is it they need? And how could I actually, some small, eh, seemingly insignificant way, meet that need? And then I want you to build on that. Here's a challenge. Identify someone in your neighborhood. See, this is where I was really challenged. I was really challenged on this. Because here I am thinking, I need to know all this stuff that's going on all over the place that doesn't really touch me here know all this stuff, yet I don't know the name of the guy who lives diagonally across my backyard, and he's been there four years. Something's wrong there, isn't there? That, that's just a travesty, really. There's my challenge then. Disengage from it all. Identify one person here in this church, community of believers, where you can fulfill this command, and then identify someone in your neighborhood, somehow, that you can just reach out to in some way do that. Now, if you do that, those three things... Here's the challenge. I dare you to come back next Sunday and tell me that it wasn't a rewarding and refreshing experience. I dare you. There's the challenge. Are we prepared to pick it up and take it? Contribute to the needs of the saints. The wall right there in front of us. And seek to show hospitality and cut down on the mindless distraction that takes us away from the things that are so often set right at our feet. Here's the eighth mark of genuine love, empathy. Verse 15, 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Yes, you're right. I skipped verse 14 because I'm going to pick it up next Lord's Day in connection with verse 17. So for now, the eighth mark of genuine love, empathy, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What is Paul saying? Here it is in a sentence. What I believe he's saying. We must seek to understand the inner world of other people. That's a, that's a great calling. We must seek. We must strive. It, won't, it doesn't come where there's no effort. It will not happen. This is a concerted effort. This is a, de a determined effort. This is a decision we repeatedly make. Whereby I'm going to seek to understand the inner world. The inner world of other people. I'm going to try to answer this question. What is he going through? That's a good question. What is he going through? What is she going through? Now, let me say this. If, as you heard me utter those words, which I just stated, if the first thought that went through your mind was as follows, boy, I wish someone would do that to me. I wish someone would empathize with me. I wish, oh, how I wish someone would try to enter my world. Oh, how I wish someone would try to understand me and come alongside me. I say this pastorally with genuine love for your own good. You've just identified your biggest problem. You now know your biggest problem. You've completely misunderstood what Paul is saying in this chapter. Paul's supreme point in this chapter is this, self-forgetfulness. That's it, folks. Self-forgetfulness in Christ. The question isn't, oh, who, who, who can enter into my world and empathize with me? No, you go back to the 10th verse. Outdo one another in showing honor. The heart-burning question, my greatest desire should be answer this question. Uh, who can I come alongside? Whose world should I be trying to enter? Who is it I should be seeking to minister to? Oh, what an expression of genuine love. How essential this is to genuine love. Empathy. A great way to break down barriers. Disarm hostility. And removes suspicion, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Here are three reasons why we struggle with this. Number one, we're too consumed with ourselves. This distances us from others. We're too critical of others. This hardens us toward others. Or we're too resentful toward others. This embitters us. Do I need to repeat those three? I probably do. Here they are. We're either too consumed with ourselves. This distances us from others. We put up walls. We're either too critical, just negative toward others. This will harden us. And that's the opposite of empathy. Or we're just too resentful toward others and this will embitter us. So you see the connection, the relationship between this and genuine love. Genuine love and sober judgment. Here's the ninth mark of genuine love. Harmony. 16th verse. Live in harmony with one another. Now, it's not harmony at all costs. You know that. It is not peace at all costs. Paul is not saying that we should tolerate doctrinal evil, error. If you think that we're supposed to tolerate doctrinal evil for the sake of harmony, I suggest you, you read the book of Galatians. That's all you need to read. Neither is Paul saying that we need to sacrifice or overlook uh, moral evil, for the sake of unity and harmony. If you're of that opinion, then my recommendation to you is his first epistle to the Corinthians. And see how he handles moral evil in that epistle. What he has to say and the threatening tone in that epistle. And so this, uh, this pursuit of harmony, this pursuit of peace, does not, do not equate it with this mindless tolerance toward doctrinal evil or moral evil. Now, he is speaking of a harmony, a peace that is actually constructed upon truth, is then characterized by genuine love, which is fueled by sober judgment. Here's how we function at Grace Community Church as elders, at least we try to function. 
This is certainly how I try to function. I'm not claiming I do perfectly, not any stretch of the imagination, but here it is. Every decision we make, every decision we make is based upon what brings peace to this local church without compromising the truth. That's pretty much it. Every decision we make, every decision we make is based upon what brings, what will bring harmony, what will bring peace to this local church without compromising the truth. Oh, we strive for a harmony. We strive for harmony within the defined parameters of the Word of God. I love what Terry Johnson has to say. This is in relation. You think back in our care groups to when we studied uh, the Beatitudes from Terry Johnson's book. He made a comment there in relation to peacemakers. And let me share it with you by way of reminder. A significant portion of peacemaking has to do not with actively doing anything. I'll repeat it. A significant portion of peacemaking, keeping harmony, has to do not with actively doing anything, but with just leaving things alone. Just leaving things alone. How true, how true that is. And when the mercies of God fuel sober judgment, sober judgment fuels genuine love, this will be a distinguishing mark we will live in harmony with one another. Here's the 10th, final mark. Humility should sound familiar. He's brought us full circle. He introduced again the theme of humility right back in the third verse where he tells us, exhorts us, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. He reintroduces it here because it's like a current running through all of these commandments in between. And so he says in the rest of the 16th verse, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Now, what does it mean to associate with the lowly? It simply means this. We make it our business, we make it our end to associate ourselves with those from whom we receive no personal benefit. I get nothing out of this. Nothing, there's nothing in this for me. There's no personal benefit, there's no intellectual benefit, there's no economic benefit, there's no social benefit. There's, absolute, there's no benefit. I'm not in this for benefit. I'm not in this in terms of what can this individual do for me. I'm not in this. I'm not approaching this from this angle. How does this serve my ends? How will this meet my needs? How will this better me? How will this help me in terms of progress or whatever? No, 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 no. I approach people. I approach individuals from this angle. Not, not what I can derive from this. What benefit do I get from this? But how can I be used by God as an instrument for spiritual good in the life of that individual. That's the essence of the command. Do not be haughty. Exercise some sober judgment and never be conceited. Oh, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the words of John Flavel. Oh, to see a poor man, Jesus Christ, traveling the country, hungry, thirsty, weary, accompanied by poor men. What benefit did he receive from any of them? His disciples, the multitudes, men, women, boys, girls, a poor man traveling, traveling the country, hungry, thirsty, weary, accompanied by poor men. Who would have ever thought that this was the creator of the world, the prince of the kings of the earth? Oh, a little sober judgment, says Paul back in verse 3. And here it is now in, ver in living color. Action, the 16th verse. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. One preacher years ago, in summarizing pretty much these verses, 9 through 16, he was actually looking at a bigger section but certainly including verses 9 through 16, uttered this statement. Genuine love. Genuine love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they need. Genuine love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they 
need. Such love, genuine love, oh, I pray, it flows from sober judgment. Where there is no sober judgment, this kind of love is impossible. Sober judgment flows from what? A consecrated life and a renewed mind. Where there is no consecrated life nor renewed mind, there can be no sober judgment. Therefore, there can be no genuine love. You've seen the connection. A consecrated life and a renewed mind flow from what? I live daily in the mercies of God. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly what I am. And I, I have appropriated this glorious truth that the triune God has poured out his mercies upon me. My only logical response is to live a consecrated life and to seek and pursue a renewed mind. And as I live out that logical response, I will be marked by sober judgment. I'll see exactly where I fit in and who I am in Christ. And when I exercise right thinking, oh, I will be consumed, propelled, driven by this genuine love. And this genuine love will be seen in what? These 10 marks. Let me give you another challenge. You want something to pray about this week? There you go. You don't need anything else. That's what I'm going to be praying for this week. I'm going to be praying that this is true. I mean, really true in my own life. I'm going to be praying that this is really true in your life. I'm going to be praying that all of these things are manifested to the glory of God and that all of these things flow, yes, from that sober judgment. And it is God himself by his spirit through his word who is impressing upon us the realities of the gospel, our new identity and status in the Lord Jesus Christ, our inheritance and in hope that is ours by divine right that he will impress these upon us to such a degree that our only reasonable response will be what? To present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Our Father, we make that our earnest prayer, heartfelt request this day in your presence, gathered as your people. We pray it not because of any perceived end in and of ourselves. We pray it because we are earnest for your glory and for the name of Christ to be magnified and exalted in our midst and for his kingdom to come among us and to be advanced in and through us. We seek your blessing now upon all that has been spoken, all that has been explained and declared and ask you for that illumination which you alone can grant. In the matchless name of Christ we ask it. Amen.